Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Once you put on that robe, once you become a judge, and you think this often, you're not a judge for the Democrats. You're not a judge for the Republicans. And uh, that's an important point, because I think all those nine people around the table believe that it's a great privilege to be in that job, a huge privilege and an honor. And you're there for 331 million people, even if half of them really disagree with you when you make a certain decision. They may disagree, but you're still there for them. That's Stephen Breyer, who has been an associate justice of the Supreme Court since 1994. He has a new book that's very timely called The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. In that book, he writes about the often precarious path the court took to establish and to hold on to its ability to act as a check on the other branches of government, and how he feels that hard-won authority may now be endangered all over again. I am so glad to be talking with you today. Thank you for making the time. This is just great. And I think you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to ask you that question that everybody seems to be asking you, because I've heard your answer many times about your retirement plans. And actually, I think this really interesting book you've written gives an answer in depth without literally answering the question. Do you think I'm sort of on the right track there? Yes, but I mean, it's a personal matter whether you actually retire. You shouldn't. I mean, there are like thousands of different, not thousands, but many different factors. And one of them could be your replacement, but I don't know that it's the major one. You have to think of the institution. Well, the reason I said that is the title of the book, I think, is literally the, the meat of the book, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. Yes. And the peril of politics, I take it, you mean that it's a danger, it's one of the major dangers for the authority of the court, for politics to be a factor in deciding cases. Yes. Yes, because if people think that that judges are are junior league politicians, they will say, why don't we have a senior league politician? <laughs> you know, why, why, why should we do this? Why should we do what they say? Yeah, and there's, in a, there's good reason for feeling that way because it's no secret that judges, justices on the Supreme Court are not voted in. So they don't have a direct responsibility in a political way to the people. So if they're going to start behaving politically, the people don't seem to have much recourse, at least not 
not directly and quickly. It might be that different political groups want A or B or C appointed. But from the point of view of A or B or C, once he or she puts on that black robe, um, he becomes a judge. And that means that he will decide according to the law, which is not usually as clear as computer science. In fact, it isn't. And there are lots of values involved. And some judges will put more weight on things like text or precedent. And others will put more weight on things like purposes, values, consequences. Now, none of those things is absolute. Everybody uses all those tools. But some use more, like Justice Scalia, very interested in text and would try to create rules because he thought there should be rules. And the other view, which I probably came closer to holding, is is, uh, the text has to be. You can't ignore the text. If the text says carrot, that isn't a fish. <laughs> so you have to be consistent with the text. You read the text, and sometimes that gives you the whole answer. But more often, it's unclear. And so you will look to things like some human being wrote this statute. There are certain values underlying the Constitution. You look to the reason the statute was written. You will look to the values that underlie that section of the Constitution and also the consequences, not any consequence, but the consequence in terms of value. That is to say, the First Amendment talks about free speech. Well, the Fourth Amendment is more about privacy. So the consequences that are related to free speech are more relevant to the first and privacy more relevant to the fourth. But None of these things are absolute. They are tendencies. But they explain a lot of differences in outcome. I get the impression that you feel that the court is not not divided up so much between liberal and conservative justices, but rather between those who pay more attention to text and those who pay more attention to outcomes. Is that right? Uh, probably. In the, in the weighing there, that's right. And, and liberal and conservative is, is just that these things are misleading. Uh, it's not, if you know, you probably do. P.G. Woodhouse has a great line where he says, Bertie woke up in the morning and he wasn't disgruntled, but he wasn't exactly gruntled either. <laughs> but that's the relation of, of, of politics. And there, there are aspects to it uh, which over long periods of time, for example, are uh, changes in the nature, or for example, the New Deal Court. Before that, the Taft Court. The Taft Court probably would have thought that you couldn't give a lot of power to the central government or to these new things called agencies. The New Deal Court came along and thought that you could. And similarly, if you way go back to a big mistake the court made, terrible, Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, where they said that segregation by race was legal. Then by the time we get to Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the court unanimously says that segregation, legal segregation by race is completely unconstitutional. 
the words, they were there earlier, but the words were equal protection of the law. And by 1954, you'd have had to have been a total idiot not to realize that a black person in the South and probably elsewhere too did not get equal treatment by the government under law. And so the court had changed, and it changes very slowly with new appointments over time. So that's an interesting question I have for you. The changing will of the people, the changing understanding of what's fair and just, is, seems to be reflected in the opinions of the Supreme Court. And is that recognition of the changing mood not political in some way? That's why I say that you could count that as political, but it happens very, very slowly over time. And, I mean, to give you an example, I mean, I grew up in San Francisco. I'd lived in Massachusetts, and I'd seen disagreement, but when I didn't, that's nothing compared to what I saw in Washington, including on the court in many cases. Not all cases, most are... There's no disagreement in. But um, first I thought, why doesn't everybody agree with me? <laughs> but they don't, and they didn't. And then I began a little bit more maturely to think that it's a big country. There are 331 million people that we have in this country every people of every race, every religion, every conceivable point of view. And uh, in a country like this, the, the Constitution itself helps to hold people together. And it's a miracle, but I see that every single day. I see in front of me people of very different points of view who've decided to iron their differences out under a rule of law rather than using what's terrible, say, guns and riots and stones thrown. And that means that to some degree, over long periods of time, the values that our country holds, not the basic values, the most basic values are in that Constitution, but how they apply will change over time. Nino Scalia and I used to debate this all the time. And we would debate it in front of student audiences, and it was fun, interesting, and, and meaningful. I think in one of those debates, I've read that he felt that putting too much weight on purposes and consequences rather than text would lead to appointing judges who vote for outcomes or more likely to vote for outcomes, and then the process would become more politicized. What, what would be yes, your answer? Yes, that is what he thought. And uh, the debate would go sort of like this, which I think the students, for one thing, the students came away with the impression we were friends, which we were, and that the court was a very serious institution where they grappled with very difficult questions, which is true. But I would say, Nina, look, George Washington didn't know about the internet, you know, and so the word <laughs> commerce and the word free speech has to change over time. And Nina would say, well, I knew that. I knew George Washington <laughs> didn't know about the internet. And, and I'd say, but you agree that sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes things change over time, values and how they're applied. He knows that. But he thinks that if judges in general 
Word two, look to too complex a matter, like looking into consequences and purposes and so forth. It would be an excuse for substituting their idea of what's good for what Congress or the Constitution's framers want. And I would reply, and he realized over time that I, that, I, that I was trying to apply the law, and I wasn't trying to just do whatever I thought was good. And I would say to him, but if you just uh, look to the history of this document and what people thought in 1787 or 89, you'll have a constitution no one would want. Mm. Now, mm. who is right in that debate? I suppose... Of course, we each think we're right. But I mean, it'll be the historians long from now who will say who had the better of that argument. One of the things I really love in your book is the stories that you tell about the authority of the court and the threat to that authority over the more than two centuries we've, we've had the Constitution and the court and the other two branches of government. The, the story behind Marbury versus Madison, where the court first declared itself entitled to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional, that was the first time that was proposed, right? Yes, it was. But I think most of the framers thought but the Supreme Court would have that authority. If you read Alexander Hamilton, I think it's uh, Federalist 76 or 78, or I can't remember which number exactly. But he's trying to work out. He says, well, I have a wonderful document here. We have a terrific document. But how do we know people will follow it? And we might, if they don't follow it, we might as well hang it up in a museum. If Congress doesn't follow it, it's, it's really about the powers of Congress, the powers of the president, the powers of government. Well, who should have the power to say when the others are wrong, have violated that frontier? Right. And so he says, if, con if we see if the power to the president, well, the president may just say everything he does is right. Exactly. What about Congress? Well, Congress, he says Congress. We, many countries do give that power to Congress. And uh, if we give the power to Congress, they're experts in popularity. Believe mm. me, they know popular. <laughs> if they don't know popular, they are not going to be in office very long, the members of Congress. But the document, the Constitution, is there just as much for the least popular person in the United States as for the most popular. So let's not. What about the judges? Well, fine, he says. Why not the judges? They're not too powerful. They don't have the power of the purse. They don't have the power of the sword. Um, they do know something about law. And they won't go too far too often. That's what he thought. And so they did, I think, believe that the Supreme Court would have the power to interpret the words of the Constitution and say what they mean or how they apply. What I love about the case of Marbury versus Madison is the story behind it, what brought that case about, because there were flavors that I recognized as 
things happening to us in the last few years where one president is so opposed to the incoming president, he wants to appoint as many judges as possible to have his ideology promoted. And that was Adams trying to trying to outsmart Jefferson as Jefferson was on the way in. But what happened there? You're, you're absolutely right. Adams was a Federalist, and Jefferson was a, a Democrat-Republican, the Republican-Democrat, they called it then. And uh, Jefferson was elected, but before he was sworn in, Adams appointed a lot of judges, which, among other things, means signing a commission. Uh, well, he didn't have time to sign the commission for a judge called Marbury. So Marbury went and sued him in the Supreme Court, and uh, said, you have to deliver my commission. It's just a ministerial act. Please give me the commission. Now, I think Jefferson, and most historians say that, was prepared for the Supreme Court to say, you have to give him the commission. And then if they had said that, Jefferson wouldn't do it. Mm. And Marshall worked out that that would be pretty bad for the court. But if they said you don't have to deliver the commission and sided with Jefferson, that would be bad, too, because the law, most people thought, was pretty clear. He did have to give him the commission. So what he did was he said, yes, President Jefferson, you do have to give him the commission under the law, but we do not have the power to decide this case. Because the statute that Congress passed that gives us the power to decide a case like this one, certain technical things about it, is unconstitutional. So there we have. Jefferson won, didn't he? He didn't have to give the commission. Ah, but he lost. (laughs) Because the Supreme Court said we have the last word to say whether a statute is unconstitutional. And by the way, That really annoyed Jefferson because he couldn't complain too much because he won. (laughs) But he wrote (laughs) letters saying, my God, this is terrible. The Supreme Court filled with my Federalist enemies, their appointees, is going to be deciding things about what's constitutional or not. And nobody objected to that and tried to turn it around. There wasn't a, a president or a Congress who came later and said, no, we don't think so. Oh, my goodness. It took a while, I'll tell you, because uh, Andrew Jackson. That's the other story I love. Tell tell that story. It wasn't quite the same thing because they were interpreting a treaty. But uh, the northern uh, Georgia was owned under the treaty by the Cherokee Indians. Right. Fine. Gold was discovered. <laughs> the Georgians thought, well, why should the Indians have that gold? We would like it. So they passed a lot of laws in Georgia saying, we have the gold, we're going to go to northern Georgia, and it belongs to us. Well, the the, uh, Cherokee Indians were farmers, they were pretty civilized, and they did what any civilized person would do, they hired a lawyer. All right. (laughs) So one of the best lawyers around, Willard Wirt, and he finally got his case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, of course, Northern Georgia belongs to the Cherokees. It does not belong to the Georgians. And it is that case of which the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, supposedly said, John Marshall, the chief justice, has made his decision. 
Now let him enforce it. Mm-hmm. That's the power of the sword, right? He was lacking. He was pointing out, as Hamilton did, that they lacked the power of the sword. Yes, and it was worse. Jackson sent troops to Georgia, but not to help the Indians or to enforce the the uh, the decision. He sent troops to evict the Cherokees, and they had to leave Georgia. And they walked along the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma, where their descendants live to this day. And the, the, the judges began, Marshall and Story and the others, despaired. They said, how is the court going to function if people don't follow what it does? Exactly. Well, That's my question to you. How, how did it recover from that? It took a long time. It took a long time. And I think if you roll the clock forward, remember, there was a civil war with 80 years of legal segregation. In 1954, the Supreme Court said, finally, legal segregation by race is unconstitutional. You cannot do it. So do you know what happened in 1955? Probably do. You remember. Nothing. Nothing. 1956, nothing, or next to nothing. Then in 1957, A rather brave judge in Arkansas, in Little Rock, said, you must take these nine black students, the Little Rock Nine, very brave, and allow them to enter Central High School, an all-white school. And the governor, Falbus, which you remember, so do I, uh, said, perhaps these nine students have a court order, but I have the state militia. And the White Citizens Council surrounded the schools. And there's a famous picture of Elizabeth Eckford and Hazel Bryan. And Elizabeth Eckford, black girl, is turned away reading her book. And Hazel Bryan, her face was contorted with anger. She later said she was very sorry. But Eisenhower and Falbus met. And Falbus told the president that he would let the children in the school. And he went out and told the press the opposite. Well, Eisenhower was pretty angry, but he called in some advisors and Jimmy Burns, who'd been on the Supreme Court, resigned in World War II to run the mobilization effort at home. And governor of South Carolina, moderate on race, said to President Eisenhower, if you send in troops, you better be prepared to occupy the South. Mm. You better be prepared for a second reconstruction. But Herbert Brownell, the attorney general and wise counselor, said to the president, you must do something. You must send troops because you cannot let people defy the law. And Eisenhower did take that advice. And he sent the 101st Airborne Division from Fort Bragg. A thousand troops went down to Little Rock, which you probably remember, as I do. And everyone knew who the 101st Airborne was. They were heroes. They were the ones who helped parachuting into Normandy in World War II and got hung up on the steeples and shot down. They were the heroes of the Battle of the Bulge. And they went and took those nine children by the hand and went into the school. Well, fine. They're in the school. But the troops couldn't stay there forever. And when they left, 
The board tried, the Board of Education in Little Rock tried to resegregate the school, and a case went up to the Supreme Court called Cooper versus Aaron, and the court said all nine signing the opinion, you cannot resegregate the school. You must integrate. Ah, but those were nine judges. Remember what happened to the Cherokees? There were mm-hmm. nine judges. You could have had 900 judges. I mean, that's a small number. So the governor closed the school. Mm-hmm. And it stayed closed for a few months, but it couldn't stay closed forever because that was the era of Martin Luther King, the Freedom Riders. The country had awakened to the injustice of segregation. And all those things coming together led the school board to back down and gradually led to an end of legal segregation in the South. When we come back from our break, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer tells me how, at least in his 27 years on the bench, the nine members of the court have often divided up in their decisions in unexpected ways. And he tells me how the restrictions on in-person conferences during the pandemic haven't been entirely negative. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Aldous Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. We're living in a time where institutions are coming under attack. The press, the fourth estate, is valued by the people sometimes less than real estate is. What's going to protect the Supreme Court in the future? Well, when I talk, I like to talk about this to high school students, college students, law school students, and I want them to read this book. Because what I say to them is, it's the values that are in that document reflect what George Washington called an experiment. And when Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address 
And he said this war is to see if this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. He was talking about an experiment. And whether that experiment in protecting human rights, in protecting a democracy, in allowing 301 million people to live together in peace, really, comparative peace compared to the opposite. Whether that continues or not, Mr. College student, high school student, it depends on you. You're the ones that will have to decide how to do it. And that means, first and foremost, you have to learn how to listen and practice listening to people who really disagree with you and mm. practice discussing on a basis of you're not an idiot. I'm listening to you. I want to know what you think. When I worked in the Senate for a while, Senator Kennedy used to say that, and he did it. Listen to people who disagree with you, and eventually they'll say something you both agree with. And then you work with that. You work with that and see if you can't get something that's positive. And if you do, don't worry about the credit for it. Hmm. He used to say that. He used to say, my God, he said, if it's a good thing, there'll be plenty of credit to go around. And if it's a bad thing, who wants the credit? And I saw him so often push somebody else in front. So I talked uh, about that to the college students or the high school students. And I say, that's why you have to go out and vote. You will. And that's why uh, you have to participate in public life. And I sincerely hope you will. Whether it's the library board, whether it's the school board, whether it's just as we had in Cambridge and you had in New York or they have in they, during this COVID, people got together. I mean, there, there were groups of people went around to see if old people had enough food and if they were doing all right. And that wasn't just true in Cambridge. That was true in St. Louis. That was true in San Diego. That was true all over the place. Because Americans, though it's a little corny, have a history that has some terrible things in it. But it also is a history where people have learned to work together. And I want to get that message across, you know, to the, to the students. And I think telling them that there are a lot of downs in the Supreme Court, but there are also quite a few ups. And telling them how I've seen that court operate over 27 years may help. The description you just gave me of listening, real listening, and looking for something that you can agree with between two people who seem to disagree, that for me is a model of good communication. Is that what you experience when you're deciding and deliberating a case in the Supreme Court when you get together and confer? Yes, that's what I've seen over 27 years. That's what I've seen. That conference works well. We, there, I've never heard a voice raised in anger. I've never heard one justice say something mean about another. I've never seen trading votes. That doesn't exist. They don't trade votes. I've, I've seen many instances where you have people labeled, quote, conservative, and people labeled, quote, liberal, Divide in such a way that they're both conservatives and liberals, quote, on one side and the same on the other side. 
After all, we recently, for the third time, upheld Obamacare by margins of seven to two. I've seen the a recent opinion, to take an example, uh, an opinion that, that uh, uh, said that employers cannot discriminate against gay people, mm-hmm. some of the liberals and some of the conservatives, you say, on the same side in favor of that opinion. I've seen that happen often. The number of opinions that is are unanimous or maybe 8-1 or 7-2 is more than half. And those five fours, they're usually about, oh, I don't know, they used to be about 15%, 20%, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, and not the same five and same four, the same six or same three by any means. And you know what's so interesting to me? I One year I counted them up. And I noticed that the press does say very often in an unusual combination. You say, but there were more unusual ones than there uh, were usual ones. Yes, that <laughs> certainly adds to your point. Yeah. You mentioned COVID before. Have the proceedings of the court, especially backstage, have they changed because of the, the pandemic? Uh, yes, a little because we had them uh, by telephone for until April, uh, and uh, the the there's a plus and a minus. Uh, the plus is people have to be very precise, and Clarence Thomas, who very rarely asked a question, asked plenty of questions when we were on the telephone. They're very good <laughs> questions too. You're more precise. You listen. You have to prepare the question, but it's less human. Yeah, on the telephone, you don't get a chance to read the other person's face. Why don't you use video? Oh, because some of the security people were worried that somebody would hack into the video. And although mm-hmm. even in the public parts, they might put up some message or muck it around or something. Like right. That. But I like the, the human part of being able to see the person. And you sometimes make a lot of progress where you get a series of questions and and uh, so I, I probably prefer what we're doing. We're going to do this year. And uh, what we started in April is, uh, well, we had our conferences in April in person. And uh, I think we'll start this year in October in person. Ah, uh, I think indoors, so. indoors or out? We'll be indoors, but we are going to have less of an audience. And I think we have the press there. And we have broadcasts on audio, and the lawyers, I think, will be there. It's a fluctuating thing. Yes. I have a question about oral arguments. Mm-hmm. When someone is being considered for confirmation by the Senate, and they're asked a hypothetical question, they say, oh, that's a hypothetical. I can't answer a hypothetical. I've heard that several times. And yet, when they become confirmed and become justices on the Supreme Court, and they're in oral oral arguments, they ask an awful lot of hypothetical questions. Why do they get to do it when they're on the other side of the bench? Because they're not, they're not saying to the, uh, the senators that they can't use or answer hypothetical questions. They can. But the questions that they want answered, the senators, usually are about cases that might come up. And that's what you can't do. You can't answer a question. Uh, about a case that might come, in fact, before you. Why not? Well, the reason why not is simply this, and we think this quite a lot. 
once you put on that robe, once you become a judge, you, and you think this often, you're not a judge for the Democrats. You're not a judge for the Republicans. You are not a judge for the party of the people who got you there or the president who appointed you. You're a judge for everybody. And they have to have confidence in you. And you start going around answering hypothetical questions about cases that might really come up. The people in those cases or affected by those results will think you just said this off the top of your head or you didn't think it through or you really weren't there for me. And uh, that's an important point because I think all those nine people around the table believe that it's a great privilege to be in that job, a huge privilege and an honor. And you're there for 331 million people, even if half of them really disagree with you when you make a certain decision. They may disagree, but you're still there for them. This has been a stirring and inspiring conversation. I really, really am grateful that you were able to take the time. We, we always end our conversations with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Right. They don't have to be too short, but uh, use your judgment. Are you game for this? They're not, they're not sure. embarrassing questions. Sure, sure. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood how over the course of history, different members of, this court, of my court have had different impacts uh, on, on, on the public. I wish I understood the relation better between a decision in a case and how it affects people. Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You say you have your facts wrong. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to that listening thing there? (laughs) Well, they they can reply, no, I have them right. (laughs) (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Ever asked me the strangest question? No, it wasn't me. But a friend of mine who was a law professor was asked by somebody who stopped him on the street and said, you're a, you're a law professor. Uh, now, my cousin died recently. Who's entitled to the body, his mother or his brother? <laughs> that was a strange question. He didn't know. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Where in court? Anywhere. Just don't say anything. Anywhere you don't. If they're compulsive, you don't. But pretty soon, if you just let them talk, they'll realize this is a mistake. Let's say you're at a dinner table, and that, that's becoming more common now, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine, a real conversation with that person? What do you do? What's your job? Mm-hmm. What are you interested in? What's your biggest problem? Oh, what's your biggest problem? I like that. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll tell you. Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that, asking what the biggest problem is, because that I've, uh, I imagine that that's near the top of their mind. It is. And what's yeah. your biggest success? What are you proudest of? Yeah. Next, what gives you confidence? Over time, 
over time, the first five years, you're not confident. The first three, four, or five years, you think, well, I got appointed to this job. My goodness, I hope I can do it. And then after a while, you feel, well, I'm doing my best. And the virtue of the job personally is you do have to do your best in every single case. You can't let up. And then if you do your best, that's the best you can do. And Thurgood Marshall, when he was asked, one point, what do you want on your tombstone? And he said, I wanted to say, he tried. He did his best. Final question. What book changed your life? No, there are a lot of books now. I think the thing to read when you're young, my uncle told me this, is read Shakespeare. And you will see every kind of person. You will see what that person wants, how he behaves, better than he knows himself, and it will all be in poetry. And then you'll have something to think about as you get older, and you will have something running through your head that isn't just the latest commercial. And that's a tremendous advantage. <laughs> the one I like now, well, the Shakespeare I like now is, a, is The Winter's Tale. Why? Why? Because there are bad things happen. Bad things happen, but spring comes. Uh, spring yeah. comes, the next generation comes along, and there we are. And uh, it will be better. It will try. And uh, that's consoling. That leads me to an eighth question, which I haven't asked anybody. I've heard you say many times that you're an optimist. Spring is coming. You see spring coming. Yes, of course. Can you, can you figure out why you're so optimistic? I'm not particularly, but I, I mean, you know, bad things can happen, but so can good things. We had a civil war, but we did have Brown versus Board of Education. We have had a constitution that's lasted a long time. So far, that experiment has far from perfectly worked, but it has basically worked over time. Uh, so we, we've seen, I mean, it may be that the country will become richer, it may be we'll feel, figure out ways of helping those who were hurt by the country becoming richer and uh, retraining or seeing that they survive too. It may be we'll becoming uh, more optimistic. It may be that people will talk to each other, that they will listen. I don't see a reason why that can't happen. It just takes time, effort, and a little will. Uh, thank you. Thanks for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very good. I enjoyed it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Stephen Breyer was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1994 by President Bill Clinton. His new book is The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Scott Small, a memory researcher whose new book is called Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering. Most of what happens in our brain, not only, and there are a lot of reasons to sleep, is to basically trim down our memories, to mow the lawn of memories, so we wake up the following day with a clean slate. Scott Small, and why you really don't want to remember everything, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.